Good morning. Today is an exciting day. Exciting for multiple reasons. As Elder Chang Fong just said, it's the first time I'm here as an ordained minister, so we get to celebrate the Eucharist at the end of the service, which is right and fitting and beautiful. So I'm excited for that. I'm also excited because this morning, we at Christ Church, we begin our fourth sermon series, having already worked through the book of Hebrews, Lamentations, and having just concluded the book of Philippians last week. Oddly or providentially enough, this is the third time that I'm here where we are introducing a new book. We happen to be here at the introduction to the sermon series on Lamentations. We just so happen to be here at the introduction to Philippians. And here we are providentially at the beginning of our sermon series on the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And it's also quite providential that this just so happens to be a perfect Advent text. When I found out that I was going to fill the pulpit on the first Sunday of Advent, I said, all right, let me see. write an Advent sermon. And then I noticed, I was like, wait, I'm due to preach Mark 1. And Mark 1 is a prototypical Advent text. So today, we'll take up the task, or better yet, we get the great privilege of starting to work our way at Christ Church through one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, we'll say some introductory remarks and look at the first eight verses of Mark chapter 1. So although when you flip your New Testament open, you find Matthew's Gospel placed first in our particular ordering of the canon, as far as chronology goes, as far as chronology is concerned, Mark's is the earliest Gospel account. The first three Gospels, I'm sure you're aware, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic just means that they take the same common view. It means they have the same general summary or the same general synopsis. Hence, they are called the Synoptic Gospels. Now, that's not to say that they aren't a host of differences and unique angles, all sorts of quirks and writing styles, insights, different vantage points amongst the synoptic authors. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they write quite different. But there is far more commonality amongst them than there is between the three of them and John's gospel. And with Mark's being the first gospel written, most likely written somewhere between 50 and 60 A.D., almost all biblical scholars believe that both Matthew and Luke use it. They use Mark as one of their primary source materials in their crafting, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously, but in their crafting of their own gospel accounts. So Matthew and Luke, they look to Mark, and that's their primary source for writing their gospel accounts. Mark, he was a close, private friend of Peter's. Many even believe it was Peter who directly dictated this gospel to Mark, and Mark sort of served as his clerk. Either way, it's of minimal significance for us, as we know that the primary author of the text is God himself, through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you can differ on who you think is the primary author here. Is it Mark? Is it Peter? It's the Holy Spirit. Now, Mark's gospel is unique. It's the shortest gospel. It's the most terse. It's the most action-packed. It does not stop for the longer 
penetrating Christological analysis that you'll see in something like John's gospel. Mark's gospel is not a biography of Jesus. If a historian came to this text, to this gospel, they would be less than pleased with what Mark omits, with what he leaves out. There is no genealogy. There's no birth narrative. There's no virgin birth. There's no shepherds. There's no Christmas story. There's no account of Jesus' childhood. The first time we see Jesus, he's a grown man being baptized. Now, it's always important to keep in mind that every author, whether that be a divine author or a human author, every author has an aim. They all have a purpose. So we should ask at the beginning of Mark's gospel, what is Mark's purpose? What's his aim? What is his goal? What does he want his readers to take away? Well, lucky for us, he tells us right away. He tells us right away that this is a gospel account. This text, this writing, the book of Mark, is not something that we later come to. It's not something that the church later comes to and then dubs a gospel. But the author himself, Mark tells us in 1-1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells you that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give you a gospel. Now, we use that word gospel all the time. So it's quite imperative that we make sure we have a clear and clean definition of it. Gospel is the word evangelium, which is just a compound Greek word, two parts. The first part means well or good, and the second part of the compound means a message. So the gospel is evangelium, it is glad news or good news. That's what the gospel is. But it's even more than that. The word gospel was historically used to describe an epoch-making event. The word gospel was used to describe something that was epochal, something enormous, something big that everything after that would be changed. You couldn't view it the same way after that event. For example, in the historical records, the birth of Caesar Augustus was called the gospel. It's an epoch-making event. It was something that was of absolute radical importance. A gospel is something of radical importance. So Mark is going to give us not just a gospel. He's going to give us the gospel. His intent right from the beginning is to herald, make an announcement of an event that will forever change history. It will forever alter history. So the gospel is good news. Enormous, epochal news. But what exactly is the news? What is the news? As is always the case, we need to let Scripture be our guide. We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture and see if there is anywhere where the word gospel is explicitly described. Is there anywhere in Scripture where gospel is explicitly described? There's plenty of places you can look to. Maybe the best is the first verse of the book of Romans. Paul writes this in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul says, I'm set apart for this gospel. And then he tells you in verse 2, what is that gospel? Which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what do we make of this? What do we make of Paul's beginning to Romans? The gospel, he tells us, is revealed testimony. It was promised and anticipated by the prophets. They had it in seed form. They had the gospel in hope. They had the gospel in expectation. Good news was coming. And they preserved that hope in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And what they hoped for, Paul tells us, is the Son of God. What they hoped for, whether they knew it or not, was Jesus Christ. The hopes and fears of all the years were met in the Son. The Son, who Paul said was descended from David according to the flesh, and is declared to be not just the Son of David, but Paul says he's also the Son of God. As the great hymn says, "'Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son God now has spoken, "'tis the true and faithful word.'" That's Romans 1 right there in that hymn. So Christ, the Son, who was the pledge, the promise of all the blessings, all the good news from God, he is the fulfillment of those promises. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 1.20. You just heard them read as your New Testament lesson. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It's a beautiful verse, is it not? Everything that we have hoped for is yea, yes, and amen, let it be so. It is so in Christ. He is the one who brings the good news, and he himself is the good news. Everything we hope for finds its yes in Christ. If you're looking for anything in the promises of God outside of Christ, you're looking in the wrong spot. Everything finds its yes in Christ. The whole universe terminates on Christ. The whole Old Testament terminates on Christ. And hence our eyes are always to be fixed upon Christ. Mark's goal then from the beginning is to give us Jesus. For he is all. As St. Patrick famously says in his hymn, Christ is beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, King of my heart, Christ within me, Christ below me, Christ above me, never to part, Christ on my right hand, Christ on my left hand, Christ all around me, shield in the strife, Christ in my sleeping, Christ in my sitting, 
Christ in my rising, light of my life. It's a good, good definition right there. Maybe an equally good one comes from Calvin. Calvin says this is the definition of the gospel. Calvin says the gospel is the public exhibition of the Son of God manifested in the flesh to deliver a ruined world and to restore men from death to life. The gospel is the public exhibition of the Son of God manifested in the flesh to deliver a ruined world and to restore men from life to death. This is the gospel. This is the great news. The happiest of all news. The inbreaking of God's kingly rule. The advent, the coming of salvation. The coming of vengeance. The coming of vindication. The coming of reconciliation. And the gospel, we are told, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will come to see that there's a twofold meaning there. That it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that he's going to preach. He's going to teach. But the gospel is about him. He is the messenger. It's his gospel message. And he is the message. He's the gospel. Unlike the man to which we now turn, John the Baptist, who was a great and wonderful messenger of the gospel. But he was a messenger of the gospel of alone. He was a bringer of the good news, but he was not the news. And that good news, although it was there in seed form in the Old Testament, although the good news was there in the prophets, that good news, the gospel, more precisely applies to what starts with the preaching of John the Baptist. So the gospel, we might say, is latently there all the way back to, say, Genesis 3.15. The gospel's all the way there back to the proto-evangelium, right? The first news of the gospel. But more directly, the gospel starts with the preaching of John the Baptist. That's what Mark tells us. John is the first, we might say, direct, open, immediate preacher of the gospel. He's the first immediate, direct, open preacher of the gospel. So we have a beginning here, a beginning. And we shouldn't miss the similarity, subtle although it may be. We shouldn't miss the similarity between Mark 1 and Genesis 1. Mark starts off by saying the beginning of the gospel. He might say in the beginning, in the beginning of the gospel. Here in Mark, we have a subtle allusion to the fact That what we have here is nothing short of a remaking of the entire cosmos. In the beginning, the cosmos was created. In the beginning of the gospel, the cosmos is remade. And how does God begin? How does the gospel begin? Well, for Mark, he begins his gospel, his preaching, by tying the story into the long, tattered dirty history of Israel by recalling the prophets, the prophets who prophesied this prophet, John the Baptist. Look at our text starting in verse 2. 
Mark tells us right away so we don't have to do any theological guessing. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As I said, Mark's gospel is terse. He's very sparse in his writing style. He's just right to the point. John the Baptist, just like Jesus, he's given no family history. He's given no biographical background. The text says, and I love this, the text says he appeared. He almost burst onto the scene, baptizing in the wilderness. Boom, out of nowhere. And where, we might ask, where might we ask, is it better to preach and to baptize than in the desert, in the backwoods, in the swamps, in the ghettos, in the Appalachian poverty? This, from the beginning, is a gospel that will be a stumbling block to the proud. This gospel comes creeping and crawling It comes dirty out of the desert. God, from the start, he's using the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Comes out of the desert. Now, the desert, it also had great significance for the Israelites. God called Abraham out of the desert. The people had wandered for 40 years in the desert. God descended on Sinai in the desert. He tabernacled among them in the desert. So this ministry, starting in the desert, well, that's apropos. It's quite fitting. And Mark's sort of shotgun blast of a writing style gives us this feeling that John's ministry, that it just sort of burst on a very surprised Jewish world. It burst in on a stunned Jewish world. They weren't ready for it. And it's not as if they had not been looking for a sign. This world, indeed, they had been looking for a sign. I mean, they had the words of Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Those words are taken directly from Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3. So they had expectations, but they didn't think the message was going to look quite like this. They didn't think it would take this form. That's not the message that they were expecting. And they didn't think it would take this form because this is the rest of that passage from Isaiah. Listen to these words from Isaiah and think of maybe why the Jewish world was not expecting this message. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And what's going to happen? Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. They had those words, and they thought, God is going to come in like a steamroller. 
and he is going to level the kingdoms of this world. He's going to flatten the Roman Empire. Let's go. Prepare the way. We're excited. And then here stumbles John the Baptist onto the scene. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The balloon is deflated. Out goes the wind from the sails. These people are hyped up for decimation, for the toppling of the Roman imperial state. And John's washing people with water and telling them to repent. I mean, that doesn't quite look like overthrowing the Roman Empire. That doesn't look like toppling kingdoms. But beloved, that is exactly what John was doing. By just washing people and telling them to repent, he was toppling kingdoms. That, beloved, that meal topples kingdoms. Now the Jews, they had a history of ceremonial washings, a history of cleansing. One example might be noted from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. Listen to these words about washing from Isaiah 1. The prophet says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, did he not? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. I mean, John the Baptist had to look like a madman. He shows up splashing water on people, telling them to be prepared for the very moment all of human history had been leading up to. All of human history has been leading up to this moment. Splash some water on you. These were the Jews who knew so well at the core of their being their most important story. The story of the Exodus. The story of enslavement in Egypt. And being led out through the Red Sea into the promised land, the land of hope. These Jews, they know the story about being led into the future. Led into a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the story that they had retold for 1,500 years. They knew that story really well. And now this dude shows up dressed like a madman clothed with camel's hair, wearing a leather belt, eating bugs and wild honey. And he shows up to those people and he says, enough, guys. No more telling the story of the Exodus. Talking time is done. It's time to act it out yourself. It's time to live it. You are the greater Israelites who will go through greater waters, led by a greater Moses. Enough talk about water. It's time to get wet. 
Time to flee Egypt. Time to flee the land of sin and be washed and made ready for the promised land. I mean, that's remarkable stuff. 1,500 years of telling that story, and this is the character that shows up and says, now live the story. And John, just like the way Mark writes, just like the way Mark writes his gospel, John was in a rush. He says, you better hurry. You better hurry, guys. Someone is coming, and he carries a big stick. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be thinking this madman doesn't seem very mighty. But the quick description that we're given here by Mark of John the Baptist, it's very similar, eerily similar, you might say, to the description given of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8 says this. Then he said to them, what kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, ah, oh, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. So John in all his strangeness, he might have been seen by some, maybe by many, as the great prophet returning. Maybe this is Elijah. Elijah who was taken to heaven. 2 Kings 2. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw him no more. Maybe, just maybe, Elijah has returned. But what is he doing in his return? How does the great prophet present himself? He says, guys, after me comes he who is mightier than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I mean, a slave would tie the sandals for his master. So for one to willingly say this is to either fully denigrate the self or to elevate the other, the one whose sandals they aren't fit to untie, it is to elevate that one beyond any normal standards. John says that what I am doing to you with water, he's going to do to you with the Holy Spirit. I mean, we've heard those words so many times that they probably don't shock us the way that they should. What a wild statement. And it provides a gigantic juxtaposition. But the primary juxtaposition is not between two different types of baptism but two different types of people. John wants to make clear that Jesus just isn't some prophet. He's not the next prophet up to the plate. He's not even just the last prophet. But rather, he is the fulfillment of all the prophets. He is what they were all hinting at. And he is going to show up, and he's going to dump God all over you. 
He's going to drown you in God. He's going to make it so that God is going to dwell in you. I mean, God had dwelt with the Israelites in the tabernacle, and that was majestic and glorious. But here the situation has been recapitulated. It's been heightened. It's been ratcheted up. God had dwelt among you in the past. But here, John says, your very being is going to be the habitation of God. As the great hymn that we will close our service with today says, Holy Ghost, dispel our sadness. It says these words. Come, O blessed of all donations. Sorry, come, O best of all donations. God can give or we implore. Having your sweet consolation, we need wish for nothing more. Come with unction and with power. On our souls, your graces shower. Author of the new creation, make our hearts your habitation. John is saying that the author of the new cosmos is going to make you and I his habitation. Something new, something radical is inbreaking, is happening here at the beginning of Mark. These Jews, they had the Old Testament voices. And now they have the figure of John the Baptist crying out. So they had the voices, and now they have John showing up with the water. And we are told that through the voice, through the word, and through the water, there's going to be good news. Good news for the world. Good news for the church. For the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. He is his new creation by water and the word. That's the good news. And here, at the outset of Mark's gospel, people are not just called to hear the good news. They're called to hear it and to act. They are called to do something, to repent and believe the good news. Mark's gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is and how people should respond to the revelation of exactly who he is. And we start here with preaching a baptism of repentance. Die to yourself that you might be risen again into the one whose sandals none of us are fit to untie. Amen.